0: Come on in, fellas. We'll meet one of the great sluggers of the American League, Al Kaline. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to the Metrodome in Minnesota. I'm George Kell, along with Al Kaline. They had a little question mark as far as the pitching, but they plugged a couple of holes as far as getting Hernandez in the bullpen. I think the team looks great. I think they're ready to have a big year. Was there ever a time where you thought you were going to go down to the minor leagues? Uh, no, because I led the league in hitting, and I figured I got a ch- shot here for a couple more years. K-line with two hits in one inning, two runs scored. Drove in runs with each of his hits. Won the first hit to the second hit. There she goes! do doubt about it! a line First straight hit, his second home run, he now is living in an eight runs. so he leads in home runs and an RBIs in the World Series, and it hits. Here's the old pro right here. Here's Al Kaline, and Al, you've been here a long time waiting for this, and uh, it's uh, you just had to be the man to score the winning run that kept it all. It had to be that way. Well, George, I said on the bench that if I got a chance to get in there, I would do something to help win the ball club. I had a feeling all, all day long that I was going to be the one that helped help win, it. I didn't know whether i get in the game or not. And I mentioned that on the bench that if I got in there, i helped help win it some way. And, and just to be able to uh, do something to help the ball club win, well, it's, it's a big thrill, and... Uh, We've been waiting a long time, everybody in Detroit, I have, and it's, it's a tremendous feeling. And nothing, nothing surprises me the way our ball club plays. It was a, a typical Tiger game, come come and win it in the late innings, and it's just fantastic. Everybody has done so much to help the ball club. Come the pitch is swung on, there's a drive down the right field, into the corner, it'll be in it for a big- Al is digging for second. He did with a stand up double. A two base hit for Al Kayline. Hit number 3000 in his fabulous career of 22 years as a member of the Tigers. Listen to this standing ovation. I was fortunate enough to spend my entire 22 years in a Tiger uniform. I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. Your support helped me to reach whichever accomplishments I was able to achieve. You know, I've been very lucky. In fact, sometimes I feel I've been the luckiest, one of the luckiest people in the world. I played on all-star teams with the greatest players in the game. I was able to finish with over 3,000 hits. I played on the world championship team. But most of all, for 22 years, I was able to make my living playing a game that has been my whole life. Being inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame is accumulation of numerous successes and thrills for which I am indebted to a countless number of people. There is one accomplishment for which I am particularly proud. It is that I've always served baseball to the best of my ability. Never have I deliberately done anything to discredit the game, the Tigers, or my family. By far, being inducted into the Hall of Fame is the proudest moment of my life. You can be sure that I will make every effort to live up to the obligations associated with this honor. Thank you.
1: Welcome to Tigers SRD, I'm the Tiger Minor League Report Network and the Overtime Media Network. I'm Roger Steele alongside Ms. Chris Brown. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartMedia, Stitcher and Google Play. Follow us on Twitter at Tigers ML Report and a new Facebook page, Tigers Report. And of course, you can find us individually at our own Twitters, Rodcast81 and Chris Brown 0914. So this week we're gonna talk sugar. We're gonna talk about that movie, do a movie review, talk about the build of the E6 Mets. But today, we honor the great Al Kaline, who passed away yesterday at the age of 85. So we're gonna take a look at his career. We're going to kick off our team build series. Instead of the 86 Mets, we're going to focus on the build of the 1968 Tigers. So Chris will be talking about the hitting aspect of how that team was built. I'll be talking about the pitching aspect. And we're also going to talk about the news that came out today from ESPN's Jeff Passett about the season possibly starting in May. And so let's, let's start there, Chris. And it's interesting to me that as early as May, and here we are, it's record day of April 7th, and according to Jeff Passon, they're increasingly focused on a plan that would allow them to start the season as early as May and they have support of high ranking federal public officials who believe the league can safely operate among the coronavirus pandemic. So this sounds like a bad idea, Chris, but I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll let you kick it off.
2: Yeah, well, I think uh, there's a lot of wishful thinking. I think there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, like, government pushing for this to happen if they want people to be entertained again i guess not to have reasons to st- stay inside and uh, you know i'm like anybody else i would love to see some baseball but but it just seems like it, it's such a harebrained scheme to, to, to the way they would do this so they would need i mean you're talking about having 30 teams in the phoenix area uh, and playing and and they'd be playing at uh, Chase Field, I think it is, or wherever the Diamondbacks play, and also spring training facilities. Um, I think some of w- only some of which are outfitted with the Statcast data, or I don't even know if they're using Hawkeye this year or whatever. But um, so that that stuff would be kind of out the board, out the window. But yeah, just the idea. I mean, they're talking about <laughs> nothing's concrete, but they're talking about having players sit in the stands six like. Six feet apart from each other, at least, <laughs> uh, instead of the dugout. Um, and, like, basically everybody just sequestered away in, like, special hotels. And it just – it. I mean, I, they can do it, but it's like, why? Like, the the logistics of it all, of getting all the other people involved, the umpires, the managers, the hotel workers, the bus drivers, or, you know, however they're getting from stadium to stadium or hotel to stadium – Keeping all those people healthy, and and using tests on them all every day, it just seems like just not what anybody should be worried about right now. But uh, I know baseball baseball wants to get going. It's just uh, I mean, I'm just very skeptical they're going to be able to pull it off.
1: Yeah, they're looking at what's going to happen in South Korea, which starts their exhibition season on September, or excuse me, April twenty first, as a way to kind of model it off. This regular season could begin. And they're they're the only league out far east that's actually starting because, as we, you know, the the Nippon Professional Baseball, which is the Japanese league, has paused because they had three of their Hashin Tigers tested yeah. positive for COVID nineteen. So I, you know, it, it's a, I understand why. I mean, and to a certain extent, because they want to do the keep up with the NFL. The NFL announced yesterday, or I believe over the weekend. I'm sorry, over the weekend. Roger Goodell made a mandate that also would say if anybody was criticizing the way the NFL draft was done, he sounded like a dictator when he said it, but we can't criticize the way it's going to be done. But essentially, it sounds like a video game where everybody is not going to just be drafted and you're going to see a very quiet Las Vegas strip. But some of the things that MLB issued a statement on Tuesday, they haven't settled on a detailed plan. And, quote, MLB has actively considered numerous contingency plans that would allow to play commerce once the health situation has improved to the point it is safe to do so. While we've discussed the idea of staging games in one location as one potential option, we've not settled on that option or developed a detailed plan. So if you haven't developed a detailed plan, Chris, isn't that a red flag to you?
2: Yeah, (laughs) it it does almost feel like they're just trying to make it seem like they're making an effort to do this. Um, You know, I'm sure they – like a detailed plan – I don't know what they would need to do that. If they would need full buy-in, or if they're waiting for—I I don't know if it's just a tendency to wait for like the uh, infection numbers to go down or whatever in uh, in, in the next couple of weeks. But it's it's just all so wacky to me. Like I understand we all want our sports back, but it just kind of takes a backseat to the health uh, of the country but maybe they, they view this as, as key to the mental health of the country or maybe it would shock me if baseball is just like man we we could have all those eyeballs think of the money um, and it's just yeah like just the logistics of it so they're talking about having expanded rosters right right um, and and so presumably that would like I don't know how that would work just guys in the 40 man I guess they wouldn't bring up like Mize and Scooble and, and Manning down to arizona but then those guys i mean there there won't be minor leagues going on unless they have also like minor league backfield games happening so if you what happens if you run through your allotment of four pitchers on the 40-man roster there's nobody to back them up you know what i mean like right there you go oh we're out of starters now <laughs> it's like and they we're playing they're, they're trying to cram in 162 games or whatever, as many games as they possibly can with seven-inning double-headers. Like, how the hell are you going to – I don't know. It just – like, there's so many questions I have about it. I did like the one aspect that they said they would have uh, – since there would be no uh, crowds, they would mic up the players more. I was like, well, that would be fun. But, yeah, man, I I just I, – I'm skeptical. I'm very skeptical that this is going to happen. Yeah. I don't know uh, – uh, maybe they just want to keep people thinking about baseball. Maybe they're trying to appease someone, but uh, I don't know. Hopefully they can figure something out, but I'm skeptical.
1: I'm skeptical, too, and they're even talking about implementing an electronic strike zone, so allowing the plate umpire to maintain sufficient distance from the catcher and the batter, which...
2: what, what like, Okay, so <laughs> where, where's the catcher going to go? The catcher and the batter are within six feet, and what happens when you get to first base? They just, nobody holds anybody on and there's no tag plays. There's no collisions. Like, are we just playing like ghost tag? Oh yeah. Total like backyard (laughs) rules. like, uh, touch the ball by the time you get to first base, you're out.
1: Yeah. Or ghost runner on second.
2: Yeah. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) it's, it's like, you know, I, I saw the pictures. It was, it was from Korea or whatever, where the players had the masks on, but half of them weren't even wearing them right. They were just covering their mouth and not their nose. And it's like, what,
1: what is going on? Or, I mean, for example, like a rundown. Can you imagine a rundown? So, how's that rundown going to go? Like, it's just going to, like, the catcher's going to go, oh, or, like, even a second baseman, or they're running down the base pass. Yeah. I can't even imagine so, I mean, that, that.
2: That's that's just like, all right. I mean, it's silly to, to, there would clearly still be players too close. Right. And that was, it goes back to my argument. I don't know when I tweeted about it a couple weeks ago. I was like, I, I don't think there's going to be a season because. And you said it. What happened in Japan? What if if a couple players test positive? What the hell do you do then? You you, you have to quarantine the players because that's it's like, I mean, that's the insidious thing about this uh, disease is is a lot of people are asymptomatic uh, and they don't realize it, and then suddenly they pass it on to somebody else who's not, and you know it spreads around. It's like there's no good way to do this until there's a vaccine. I don't think, but.
1: I don't know. I don't either. I mean, even a local reporter, M.L. ML, ML Elric, who does a podcast for Soul Detroit, got it recently, and he was talking about the whole experience on the Drew Mike podcast. yeah, I didn't hear that. Yeah, that sucks. Yeah, that sucks. And can you imagine a reporter? I mean, if a reporter came and covered the game, I mean, he's going to watch it online. Is there going to be a closed-circuit stream for those, for the play-by-play, or excuse me, for the beat writers, or even for that matter? So what? So the... They're just going to get a statement from the baseball from the team itself, and just have generic line, generic cliches. We played a good game, we, we hustled, and that's just going. to – the Reporters are just going to get that and they get spoon fed that versus going in the locker room, which is fine. You want the the safety of everyone is what matters the most, number one over anything else. But I, almost in a way, Chris, in some ways, I feel like this is some sort of social experimentation. By baseball, and this is a little conspiracy theory heavy, and I don't care. That's fine. I'll I'll say this, but I feel in some ways, can you imagine afterwards and seeing how some of the stuff like works out? They're like, oh, maybe we'll make this going forward with limited locker room access and little things oh, like yeah. that. You know what I mean? Like it, it might set a precedent going forward that because it works so well during this, that it can make it a standard. Like we talked about last week about the drafts being five rounds maybe permanently or maybe 10 rounds, whatever the case may be, this is a precedent for MLB to go, you know what? We like this. Let's just keep it that way.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I don't think that's too much of a conspiracy. We've already seen that uh, with the draft stuff they were doing. They have clearly wanted to eliminate rounds in the draft and possibly minor league teams, and they're using this as a, as a kind of a trial balloon to see if that'll work. It wouldn't shock me if they use this, if they try to play this and, and and uh, change some things. And, and there's nothing inherently wrong with uh, with, you know, when, when there's a giant earth changing event, maybe not going back to the way things were before, maybe trying to change some things up in general. Like, uh, you know, we don't like to get too political, but maybe when we realize there's an event that causes like 30 percent of people to lose their jobs, maybe we can move away from employer based health care maybe one day. But uh, but yeah, with baseball, like who knows? Like this, you, like you said, the, the electronic strike zones—they've been wanting this. A lot of people have been wanting it. Maybe now's the time to make it happen. They would and, some, uh,
1: save money on that yeah. too.
2: Yeah, seven inning double headers, whatever. Maybe they they do that and go, hey, this is this is good. Or maybe they implement the because c- I I don't I don't know exactly how many stadiums are out there. I mean, I you assume there. I don't know if any spring train, training teams share stadiums. But it's probably close to 15 or whatever, so they can probably play the full slate. But I do wonder if they might end up having multiple games in one stadium each day. Like, uh, which would be fun for viewers, you know, like, hey, there's a game at noon, there's a game at four, there's a game at seven.
1: Yeah, but but, by, uh, uh, like Little League back in the day. Yeah, but what do you
2: do for extra innings? Well, you, you implement those new extra inning rules where the guy's on second base <laughs> at the beginning of each <laughs> inning, and there you go. Like you said, it, it, this is going to be a chance for them to try some new stuff if they can get some games at all. Um, so, yeah, who knows?
1: And also, if you think about it this way too, the seventeen double headers. Think about it this way that might mm-hmm. even, like, let's say, let's say hypothetically speaking, they make that a standard going forward, and like they they increased a the, little by little, they increase the double headers, and then that might reduce a roster spot someday because you don't need. Perhaps maybe they do. You you see, what I'm saying like they might not. Mm-hmm they might reduce a roster spot to by one, which would cost a player a job because maybe they're playing shorter games.
2: Well, it's usually, so what we've seen so far is, is players will agree to things as long as it's okay for them. Uh, They wouldn't agree to anything like that. I don't think reduced what they would agree to probably is another, like expand. So they, we've got the 26 man rosters. Now that's something they like, it's another player getting, you know, salary full major league salary maybe they're talking about doing this they expand the rosters to 28 29 30 players might stick with that and and so yeah we can keep doing this and on the flip side you can you know whatever more scheduled double headers and only seven innings and we'll allow these over extra inning rules just you know stuff like that to get more players on there but we are definitely going to see some changes if they play. And like I said, I'm still I guess I'm I'm less 99% sure they're not going to and more like 75% sure they're not going to, but uh, you know, like I said, we'll cross our fingers and hope they figure something out that doesn't put anybody in danger.
1: Yeah, that's the most important thing. And and we as a consumer, as a person who writes baseball, who does a baseball podcast, yes, I would like the season to start, but at the same time, I want to make sure 100% More important than anything else that everyone's safe, that this virus doesn't this virus stops and that there's some sort of vaccine and that we don't have to live in a world where I see latex gloves skewed about in the garbage or not even in the garbage can, but in the parking lot. Or I have to literally kind of anytime I'm going running, I have to go the other way because it's social distancing. I'm sick of it all. Everyone's sick of it. Mm -hmm. And, And anybody that tells you otherwise is or, or everybody's also trying to shame you for not learning a skill set during this time. Shut the f**k up, really. That, I don't want to hear that either. But it's it sets a precedent for everyone going forward, what they do with all these potential rule changes. And I just want to make sure that everyone's aware that we, as consumers of media, consumers of baseball, that when they do go back to normal, when do, things do go back to normal, that we are also re- recognizing the one thing that's more important about baseball for anybody for the owners involved, that their profit margin continues to grow. And there's ways they're doing this right now that will help them do that by reducing the minor leagues, by reducing salary, reducing even to a certain extent the, the games aspect of it too. There's so much at play here for MLB that will help them make profit. And and ultimately, bottom line is, and I hate to say this, but they look at the players as cattle sometimes and. I'm sorry. This is where I feel like in this case, it's, I don't feel too far fetched off with that statement.
2: No, absolutely. It's, they want the revenue back somehow. And, and, uh, I guess in this case it would be the advertising revenue from TV. And, and they think they would have huge ratings. And, uh, yeah. And, and maybe they're also worried that a year without baseball, people would be like, huh, eh, whatever. Don't miss it. Um, but yeah, everything. Yeah, I'm sure the owners also like baseball. But you're exactly right; they're thinking about their bottom line first. Um, so I don't know. We'll see. We talked about it last week, or I don't know if it was last week or when we talked about it. But the the draft changes, and twenty grand for undrafted free agents, which is it's just going to be a weird free for all. Yeah. Um, and you would think about like a six six rounder last year made three hundred grand, and this year they're going to get twenty grand. Um, and, you know, someone like Tarek Skubal, what do you do? He's a, he was an older junior who didn't go until the ninth round. He got like, what, 500 grand, something like that. Um, and then if you, you know, when you're those guys who don't get drafted, you basically, you can kind of pick and choose where you go, which is probably how it should be anyway. But, but like, who, who the hell is going to come sign with the Tigers? Right. No, and and- maybe, maybe guys see, a, you know, I get opportunity for playing time or whatever, but. I think a lot of people are just like, yeah, I'll, I'll go sign with the Yankees if they're going to get me 20 grand. Oh, absolutely. With the Dodgers.
1: Yeah. I mean, if, if you think about it, then you're almost creating a situation kind of where, in the NBA, where it's destination cities at that point. So you have the advantages mm-hmm. of LA and New York, which have deep resources, deep pockets, and perhaps they can put these players in their AA, AAA affiliate or single or whatever affiliate. I mean, the affiliates could be changed at this point too. Next couple of years, so they can store those guys away and build. And maybe even, but like I said, you even said this last week about the advent of indie ball being a big thing. If the economy gets back on the feet in the next three or four years, hypothetically speaking, and you have enough groundswell of players out there, you could see a actual indie league that mm-hmm. that incorporates cool rules and it makes baseball what it should be with the minor league experience, everything come into play because Rob Manfield is doing everything he can, in my opinion, at least to just kind of make things just make no logical sense in some ways, but in some ways just purely for profit or purely for what the owners want to do, which is go back to every decade of baseball, which is find a way to make the players as cheap or produce Talent at the most cheapest level possible Simple as that there's I mean you talk about the Collusion in 87 you can talk about The the player strike in 94 There's so many examples Strike in 81 I can Go on and on even with What the groundbreaking work That Marvin uh, Marvin uh Miller. Miller thank you Marvin Miller did And the sacrifice that Kurt Flood had to do it's I don't know. I digress I can go on and on about This but uh Let's go, let's go with who we want to discuss. We'll, we'll, we'll take a break. We'll come back with Al Kaline, and we'll talk about the 68 Tiger build. You're listening to Tiger's SRD on the Tiger Minor League Report Network. We'll be back after the break. And we're back on Tiger's SRD, and now the second half of the podcast, we'll be talking about Mr. Tiger himself. Al Kaline passed away yesterday at the age of 85. And there was just a, su- a suggestion, I think it was Ke- his gentleman's name was Kevin, on Twitter about making April 6th Al Kaline Day, and I thought that'd be very fitting. And before we get to the bill of the 68 Tigers, let's talk about his career, Chris, in terms of his impressive career, voted in the Baseball Hall of Fame in 1980 on 340 ballots of the possible 385, so I don't know who the other 45 people didn't vote for him, We're smoking something, but... Yeah.
2: Well, you know, you know, not until uh, Mariano Rivera did everybody anybody get unanimous. So there were there were a lot of writers who just wouldn't vote for somebody on their first year, no matter what. Yeah, still so, to make so him earn it.
1: To this day, it's still one of the strangest things. Anyways, I digress. So his career WAR was ninety two point eight. He had three thousand seven hits, three hundred ninety nine home runs, lifetime batting average of two ninety seven. And here's a guy who spent not a day in the minor leagues. At all. He was signed right out of high school from his home from Baltimore, which is really cool when you hear the story, when you see that his 3,000th hit came in Baltimore, I believe on September, it was September 1974. At the age of 20, he would go and go the All Star game and hit his best. I mean, at age of 20, 340, 200 hits, 27 home runs, 102 RBIs, in 152 game schedules. So keep that in mind. That's very impressive. He walked more. than He struck out. So he only walked. He walked eighty-two times. Struck out only fifty-seven times. His OPS was nine-six-seven. He had three hundred twenty-one total bases. Chris, that's just impressive. And it would be the first of thirteen, excuse me, twelve straight All Star appearances from fifty-five till nineteen sixty-seven. And he was arguably the best right fielder in the American League at this time. You have you have Roberto Clemente. In the National League at this time Who had a cannon for an arm But Kaline was just as steady And the one thing about Kaline Chris that we can talk about his humility here in a second But it turns out it's just pure stats Pure, like if you look at his baseball Knowledge and, and Just his way he played right field At Tiger Stadium Well first at Briggs Then became Tiger Stadium in the 60s It was brilliant Yeah, no,
2: I, I think that just from, from, you know, we never got to see the player, uh, other than some highlights. But looking at the stats, the, the things that stand out is just how well-rounded he was and how consistent he was for so long. I mean, he, he, he had a couple down seasons and got injured a few times. But just year after year after year after year after year, was pumping out five, six-win seasons. Um, and that's how you get to ninety ones <laughs> above replacement. But, yeah, just, just uh, you know, strong defender, terrific arm. Great hitter, good uh, play d- discipline, above average power. He, you know, he was never a huge power hitter. I don't think he, he never hit 30 home runs in a season. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he was kind of uh, – you know, maybe it's uh, a little dramatic to say to, he was to Tigers fans what Mickey Mantle was to the Yankees fans. Um, but it was close, you know. I mean, it, Mantle, I guess, was probably flashier and hit for more power. But uh, Kaline was kind of more of a Detroit fan style baseball player, I suppose less glitz and glamor and more going to work every year. And, uh, yeah, I mean, like, uh, I, I, who was, I read Lynn Hennings, uh, great piece about him last night and how
1: absolutely awesome.
2: How he, he didn't, how, how it bothered K that he took himself out in the third inning of his final game without thinking about, you know, where he was, he was at 399 career home runs and just, uh, stuff like that. But yeah, just, uh, to sound like a consummate pro and a great performer for a long time.
1: Yeah, his postseason in the world. I mean, he saved the best for last. And then you, by the way, if you heard the audio clip earlier, the introduction. His World Series bad three seventy nine, two home runs, eight RBIs, his OPS yep. over a thousand, and he was a thorn on the Cardinal side. And I, my recollection with alkaline was as a broadcaster, with George Kell that to me yeah it's that's it to anybody in our generation he was gen x gen y whatever abbreviation you want to use so i don't want to get into this oh i'm a gen x who cares doesn't matter Uh, (laughs) who cares but he was the best color guy the tigers have ever had i mean it's like i've I've thought about that for i thought that all night jim price is really good too I, i like jim price i mean a lot of people don't like jim price i don't mind jim price at all and he was really good at what he did. He he was he was fair. He was if the Tigers were struggling, he wasn't afraid to say it, and he was right down the middle. And that's what I like about K-Line. He let George Cal do his thing, and K-Line just chipped in when he wanted to and or when he needed to. And that to me is a color guy. It's kind of that he had a good balance to it. And the voice when he was gone, it was for a while. I had to, we had Kirk Gibson with Josh Levin, and then. Course, you had Dan Petrie, you have Rod Allen. So, you have all these names I mean, they're among Tiger lore, but K Line to me still stood out above the best.
2: Yeah, well, you know, that's the way they, you know, we're often kind of uh, biased towards the, the announcers and things like that who we grew up with. And, but yeah, I mean, I, I just remember who knows what I would think about K Line now if I went back and listened, but I'm sure it was great. He was, he was a very smart baseball man. And I remember loving those broadcasts. It was a channel four, wasn't it? Yep. Yeah. I remember, especially like every Saturday or whatever, I'd see the, sit there and watch, uh, Kel and K line talking about the tigers. And yeah, it was, it was, uh, it's a big part of our youth, you know, for a lot of people, it was Ernie Harwell, but I didn't listen to baseball much on the radio. So for me, it was, it was K line and Kel. And so it's a sad day, you know, it, it's 85 years, Hall of Fame career, it's it's you can't feel too bad about it, but he was still an active participant in the organization. You know, he was always around, uh, and and so that that's gonna if the season were happening, it would be a big big hole for sure. Um, and I don't I don't know if I feel better or worse that he died right now when there's no baseball going on. I I feel I've kind of happy for my granddad that he didn't have to sit here with no baseball. Uh, so maybe that's the same for, for Al Kalin. Maybe if baseball had been playing, he would have held out a little bit longer. But we we don't really know what happened. But uh, I think we can assume that if it were coronavirus, we would know about it.
1: Oh, yeah, because the news would be so quick to to say um, something about that.
2: Yeah, so I, I assume that he he was ill. Because uh, yeah, they also didn't say, like, you know, had a heart attack or a stroke or something like that. So a a disease of some sort, unfortunately. But kept it quiet because that's the kind of guy he was.
1: Yeah, and that's – you like that – that's what I liked about him. He just kept to himself, but he was also such an influential person to a lot of players. A lot of players on – Justin Verlander got teared up yesterday. Every player that he – he helped Kirk Gibson in right field. He was he was a guy that all the players loved, and he they went to for any type of baseball advice. And so what more can you ask for a guy like that? Yeah, so, I mean,
2: it's – you don't get called Mr. Tiger or Mr. Anything. Uh, for no reason. I guess you get called Mr. Met if you're a mascot, but um, yeah, it, like you know, he he was the epitome of what it meant to be Tigers. Just just a towering figure in Detroit sports. The only one I can think would compare is Gordy Howe. Uh, maybe maybe one day people will think back of like Barry Sanders or Steve Eisman or something like that. But but just you know, decades of of being an icon for Detroit and uh, stayed here his whole life, right? I mean. Yeah. I think he he lived at Bluefield Hills or West Bloomfield or something like that. So, yeah, it's a, it's definitely a loss. It's a it's been a lousy year this 2020, but uh, you know, w- w- there's a whole lot to celebrate there. I, I think that's uh, the way I choose to look at it. You know, fantastic career, great man, and brought brought uh, helped bring the Tigers a championship in '68 and broadcast a lot of my memories as a kid. So I got nothing but uh, good good memories. Al Kalin
1: and this is I found this on the Seiber. Website, the Society for American Baseball Research out there. I did not know this until recently that he was his his father, which was a semi-pro baseball player, taught him how to pitch. And he learned by the age of nine, he could throw a fastball, curveball, and a changeup. And in grammar school, he won 10 straight games. And during a picnic <laughs> festival, he threw a ball 175 feet. And so one of the things he also overcame too was Osteomalitis, mali- mal- sorry folks, I'm not, a, I'm not a doctor, it's a chronic bone disease that fo- focused him to remo- it was remove all the disease bone from his left foot, so what he had to do was run- he ran on his side of his foot, hmm. so that's a cool little thing. And maybe that's why he,
2: uh, he was a little bit injury prone, but... <laughs> But, yeah, I knew I, I none of that. And that's always, you know, those saber things, those deep dives are always fantastic.
1: Yeah, fantastic stuff. And that was something that I found out during the research here. But so speaking of research, so we looked at the 1968, the build of the 1968 World Series champs, the Tigers, managed by Mayo Smith. So I used to mean I used to mess with people. and I would tell everybody that the Mayo Clinic was named after Mayo Smith.
2: Oh, gotcha. Yeah. Sorry, yeah, I didn't. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I didn't, uh, didn't catch on to that. <laughs> That's okay.
1: No, it's no, it's um, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll edit that part later. later, but um, um, go ahead. Yeah,
2: so, you know, building teams used to be much different way back in the, uh, you know, the draft started in 1965, but free agency didn't come for another, what, six, seven years. Um, so the majority of that team was just all homegrown, you know, signed and in brought up through the minors, uh, other than Al Kaline and, and eventually, um, you know, all, all working together for the tigers, uh, aside from one big name, but that was, you know, when I think of 1968, I, I tend to think of it from the pitching standpoint, you know, the, the so-called year of the pitcher, Denny McLean won 31 games and Mickey Lolich had that famously, uh, you know, spectacular world series. But I, I guess I didn't realize that, that, uh, the 68 offense was one of the best in tigers history like tied for the second best with the 83 tigers and, and only beh- behind the 84 tigers, at least that not necessarily like by weighted ones created plus they were 15th, but by offensive war, they were tied for second. That's because it was one of the best defensive uh, teams, at least according to fan graphs in, in, tigers history, just an incredibly talented group. It's, it's hard to believe that only one of the regulars is in the hall of fame. Although, uh, One part-timer was in the Hall of Fame, too. But, uh, yeah, Bill Freehand, who probably should be in the Hall of Fame, had his best season that year. A lot of guys had their best seasons that year. Bill Freehand was a 7-win player, the catcher. I think he uh, hit 25 home runs that year. I was looking. There were, like, 12 players in the American League who hit 20 home runs that year, and four of them were Tigers. You had uh, Freehand, who was 7-win season. Then you got 20 home run seasons from outfielders Jim Northrup and Willie Horton, who both had career-best 5-win seasons. Dick McAuliffe, uh, in his funky stance, was also a five-win uh, season. That's I think he had just moved to second base from shortstop. And then Mickey Stanley, Norm Cash, and Al Kaline all put up three-win seasons. And uh, Cash and Kaline did it in, in shortened years. Kaline broke his arm. I don't know what happened to Cash, but Cash was the one main uh, piece of the team that was not didn't come up to the Tigers. He originally came up with the White Sox, and then was traded to the Indians. The Indians never played him again, and they traded him to the Tigers for who did they trade him for? Steve Demeter yeah. uh, and then you know like one year later he put up like you know that ridiculous 10-month season but yeah so you're talking that was seven regulars with who each put up at least three wins that year which is insane and then you have you have Gates Brown who probably had the best pinch hit season of all time he uh, he went 34 for 92 with seven doubles two triples and six homers and 12 walks in just four strikeouts. So he hit three seventy and had a two-win season in 104 plate appearances. <laughs> it's uh, it's insane. And then the pitcher, Earl Wilson, hit seven home runs in 92 plate appearances, which is ridiculous. Uh, so, yeah, that was just a, a, an all-time great Tigers offense. Uh, not everybody was fantastic. You know, their shortstop, Roy Oiler, Ray Oiler, he was like a career 170 hitter or something like that. Just an all-glove shortstop he had 135 that year with one home run in 111 games
1: it took till alan trammell it took till alan trammell to have a shortstop with offense tigers for a while too they had that guy in 72 ed brick eddie brickman same thing they could not for the life of them have an offensive shortstop as you were they
2: probably yeah yeah they probably you know back then just didn't care like yeah your your job is to catch catch the ball don't make errors so uh yeah, and so he 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 wasn't great, and we'll hear more about him in a second. But uh, and then Don Wert, their third baseman, who had apparently been solid for for his career up to that point, but got hit in the head by a pitch that season, and it like cracked his helmet open, and he was out for a couple games, and, and he was just never the same again. Uh, yeah, so that that's a bummer. But he was okay. He was like, a replacement level player. Uh, so I mentioned earlier, yeah, the K-line got hit hit in the arm, broke his arm, so they ended up moving Jim Northrup to center field. Or to right field, and, and Mickey Stanley started playing every day in center field. Mickey Stanley actually, coincidentally, is lives not too far from me. I think I had a signed ball from him, or he did live. I don't know if he died. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, and then late in the season, Mayo Smith made that decision, kind of a famous decision, to get his best bats in the lineup. He basically he moved. I think he moved North Northrop to center, K-line back to right, and then Stanley to shortstop, where I don't think he'd ever played. And you set Oiler down, and that's where Mickey Stanley played for like the final eight, nine games of the regular season and then all seven games in the World Series, which is kind of uh, crazy when you think about it now. It's like taking, uh, hey, Victor Reyes or Jacoby Jones, go play shortstop real quick. Uh, but they did it, and it worked out, obviously. And and so, yeah, I mean, it was it uh, it was uh, it was a hell of a year for them. 68 was actually the first time, I think you mentioned it, since, what, 54, 55, that K-Line missed the All-Star game. I think cause of the injury and for a couple of years early in his career, they had two all-star games that he made. I think there were four years they did that and he made seven of the eight all-star teams, <laughs> which is pretty good. Um, but yeah, this that's 68 was K line's only world series. He made the playoffs again in what 72 when they expanded to the ALCS, but his only world series. You mentioned that he went 11 for 29, two doubles, two homers, six runs, eight RBIs, uh, a couple of nice catches. They said, uh, in game two, I watched, uh, one of them was a nice running catch off Orlando Cepeda, who was a right-handed hitter, and he fouled it to uh, basically the St. Louis bullpen. The bull. Cepeda. Cepeda the bull.
1: Yeah.
2: And, and uh, so he ran and tracked that down, and he made another one in, in uh, right center field. But he had possibly the biggest hit of the series. You know, the Tigers were down three games to one, and they were down 3-2, I think, in the seventh inning of game game five. And he came up with the bases loaded and hit a two-run single to right field, which uh, was a 33% uh, win probability added. That the it was the third highest WPA play in the entire World Series, behind uh, good old uh, Tim McCarver, <laughs> hit a three-run homer in Game Three. The, it was like it proved St. Louis's chances by like 45%. And then the, the uh, infamous Jim Northrup triple in Game Seven over Kurt Flood's head, where Flood. Uh, slipped and fell down that was the the biggest hit for the tigers but k-line you could argue k-lines was bigger because that was you know game five and they were down if he didn't get a hit there then maybe they don't win game five and then there's no game six or seven to be had so yeah just a, a terrific world series for one of the all-time great players and uh yeah it was it was a hell of an offense like i said that the only other players I, I mentioned norm cash he came from another team they uh they had Dick Triszewski was on that team who I knew later as a coach, I believe with Sparky. Right. Um, and he, he came over, I think from a, from the Dodgers a few years before I mentioned uh, another hall of Famer, Eddie Matthews was on the team for about 30 games. He, uh, he came the year before as well in a trade. And then there was poor Lenny green who signed with the Tigers in 67 was released on July of 1968 after just six games. So I don't know if he got a world series ring. Hopefully he did, but yeah, I mean, it was just a, a tremendous, uh, tremendous group of players who all seemed to have their best seasons. Not all. It wasn't Kayline's best season, but but a lot of them had their best seasons at the same time. And uh, boy, did they need it to win in seven games. So it was, it was a damn fine offense.
1: Speaking of which, by the way, they are showing the Game 6 of the World Series tonight, 8 o'clock, and Game 7, both on the MLB Network. So if you want to check out the 68 series, 68 series. Yep.
2: Outstanding. Yeah.
1: So we'll put the links in there. Remind myself to put the links in the show description, Uh, courtesy of Evan Woodbury, who provided an update for that. So also they're showing the 84 world series this afternoon on MLB network. So right now as a recording time, you can watch game four. Well, game one's on right now, but I have, I have the whole thing on DVD, so I don't really need to record that, but in terms of the pitching, you were talking about how interesting the pitching was for the 68 team. It was it was everything. It was one mm-hmm. of the biggest things that Johnny Sane, who ended up clashing with Mayo Smith and was fired the following year in 69, really with his – he had like a tool to help these pitchers get a better grip. And in the, book, in, the, in the book of the year of the pitcher, which was the year of the pitcher, the 68 was the last year before the mound was lowered. In 69 for better offense because offensive numbers speaking wise, you talk about the Tigers best offense. There was not a lot of, there's not a lot of homers. There's a lot of times where the pitchers would have to go out and look at Dan McLean's year, 336 innings, which is unheard of. <laughs> if you think about it in the grand scheme of things now.
2: Yeah. I think they said the league wide offense, the, the batting average was two thirty. right? Which is uh yeah, not great.
1: Not great at all. And there was not a lot of guys with, in terms of even, there's another book out there too. If you, Fans want to check it out. It's called the summer of 68 by Tim Wendell. And that's another good book that I have in my collection that talks about that whole entire summer. And there's the HBO documentary too about the 68 tigers, but get back to the staff and why it's important to mention this a little bit. So in terms of how the staff came together. So Danny McLean was originally drafted by his hometown, Chicago White Sox. And he White Sox had made a decision whether to keep him or not. He was left unprotected, and the Tigers signed him in 1963. So he was just kind of made his way up to the system, and, of course, his brakadocious kind of behavior, a lot of the guys. And, and he felt, going into the '68 season, he let the team down. He was he was 0-2 down the stretch in September, and the Tigers lost in the last day of the season as the Red Sox came back. They, that crazy week that Carl Yastrzemski had where he literally said, hey, Guys, I got to when he literally put the team on his back behind him and Hawk Harrelson. That's right. Hawk Harrelson was a very good baseball player, folks. Not just an <laughs> annoying Chicago White Sox announcer for some people out there. But he was a big part of that, too. He was, he was a trade piece that came over from Chicago. So anyway, uh, so McLean came with a chip on his shoulder, came with some expectations. And the Tigers really... Behind what well, they thought that going into 68, that Earl Wilson, a lot of the writers thought that Earl Wilson would be the big man, the big ace of the staff. And he was the Boston Red Sox first African-American pitcher. And he made his debut on July 29, 1959. And him and uh, Pumpsey Green were the first two African-Americans to play. You talk about his hitting prowess. The guy hit three fifty six Minnesota when they used to have a A affiliate. He hit three fifty six out there. That's how good he was as a hitter. So he came over just a couple of years before he was traded to Detroit with a player name or for with Don DePner, and the Tigers sent over Julio Navarro to the Red Sox. So he came over and in '67 put a really good season. So heading in '68, his '67 seasons, why a lot of Tiger a lot of the Tiger beat writers thought he would be the best. And with McClain being kind of inconsistent. He was 22, he went in 22 games, was an ERA 3.27, and he was a guy who just, he went out there every game, he didn't, he was, he was a solid pitcher, and so led by that, and then Mika glowlich who was able to figure out his fastball issues he had out in AAA when the Tigers used to have an affiliate team out in Oregon, which is strange to think about that now these days, but uh, at any rate, when he was signed... Excuse me. He they they figure out his pro- problems when he was out there because he li- he grew up in Oregon. So McLean was a guy who was kind of a portly dude. He's always been known for that. But he also he had arm shift. His arm was like a rubber arm, and he was signed in 1958 for thirty thousand dollars after posting 195 record at Lincoln High School in Portland. But 68, he was still coming into 68 again. Wasn't the guy that would you'd see in the world series, which we'll get to in a second. And then the fourth guy in that rotation by the name of Joe Sparma and Sparma was the guy who clinched the win, the clinching game for the pennant in 1968. But he was a guy who just showed some flashes, but really could not stay focused. And that was a big part of his game, but he was the team's essentially the fourth starter. They ran a four man rotation in those days and then you had guys on the likes of Pat Dobson and John Hiller, which would become the Tigers all-time leading closer for a while. But really the bullpen was by committee. And it was really a situation where Male Smith had to turn. He turned into those two arms I just mentioned, and the likes of Daryl Patterson and left-handers Les Kane and John Warden. So with Dobson and Hiller kind of leading the veterans by, it was a bullpen by the committee and no pitcher registered more than seven saves by Dobson and Patterson. So what's interesting about that, Chris, is that back then they would consider a stopper. It wasn't a closer. Closers weren't what they were then. Four of the relievers end up with the ERA below three, and they also picked up Dom McMahon and John Wyatt in July and June to help out the bullpen. And here's like I mentioned earlier, McLean threw 336 innings. Earl Wilson 224. Wallace threw for 220. And Sparta threw for 182. But then Dobson and Hiller both threw And Dobson threw for 125. Hiller threw for 128. So yeah. those are days where the, the bullpen was kind of – essentially just kind of filling the gaps whenever they could. And that was a big reason why the Tigers were in terms of just – in terms of how they were they – were, they led the league in pitching too, I believe as well. It's a mm-hmm. double check double, – double-checking that right now. But – it was a team that was built on that rotation. And we talk about McLean's season here. Let's get back to that. I mean, the guy won Cy Young. He, back-to-back Cy Young. everybody forgets he wins. I even forgot that he won a Cy Young in 1969. He won his 30th game on September 14th on a nationally tabloidized game against the Oakland A's. And he went five days later, his 31st. Which, in that same game, by the way, was the game where he threw a pitch to Mickey Mantle, who's basically retired at the end mm-hmm. of the season. But he was the first pitcher to win 30 games since Dizzy Dean in 1934. And he went out there every game and talk about uh, Sane's rubbing off on him a little bit in terms of the grip. And he was going over. But like I said, they, did, they pitched him until their arms were dead.
2: Yeah, and, he was 24. Yeah, <laughs> 24 through 330 innings or whatever.
1: Yeah, and there were yeah, both.
2: but I didn't realize he had apparently had a, like two chances to win more games, but didn't. So he had 31 wins; he could have had 32 or 33.
1: Yeah, and what's even cr- what was even crazy about the '68 season too? And he was talking about this in a little bit in the book, where in the book Year of the Pitcher, where he was getting, you know, taking shots, and mm-hmm. you know, taking shots for his elbow when he was. And a lot of a lot of turmoil too, because he would fly out, do his gigs. He was trying to do his organ gigs. He was a very good organ player, and he kept talking about making a hundred thousand dollars. That's what he he wanted. He expected it, and Campbell only gave him sixty after the the year. Because I mean, I think also you think about it this way too about the the World Series and how he pitched. He lost twice to Bob Gibson. Bob Gibson was absolutely brilliant. And this yeah. is where Mickley Lowledge comes into play in Tiger lore. In addition to his couple seasons he would have after he won three games and Lowledge was clutch and he just did his thing. Even though he talked about the day of the world series that he just, he slept like a baby before his start, went out there, did his pitch with when he needed to. And that was it. And then get back to McLean for a second in terms of, Taking shots, to the elbow, and keep going out there. They said that that had an effect on his dead arm, and he was having dead arm, and that's why he thinks his career derailed such an early career after he was traded to the Senators for the third baseman Aurelio Rodriguez, who was a staple for the Tigers in the mid seventies. But that sixty eight season, the amount of, I mean, he he would pitch on three days rest for most of the season. He led the league in starts forty one, completing twenty eight of them, and we talked about his innings. He said the pain in his arm was constant and unbearable. He would need a cortisone shot and take greenies to begin the game. And by the third inning, he was visibly suffering. And this is during the World Series. So three days. Imagine a pitcher pitching on three days of rest now, Chris. The Twitter outrage would be insane.
2: Yeah, well, I think who is it? Trevor Bauer wants to do uh, go back to the four-day rotation. So it's, yeah, you know, it's just a matter of of. Back then, the pitchers didn't have any choices. I could see it going now if the pitchers actually wanted to do it. But uh, yeah, I mean, we just know that having having 24-year-olds throw that many innings is just bad news. 23-year-olds, you want to wait till guys are. I, mean, God, I, I who even threw the who's the last who threw 300 innings? Think, Verlander hit 250 back in like 2009, didn't he?
1: Yeah, I'm trying to think. It At was 300.
2: It, it was probably like Randy Johnson.
1: Yeah, I, I, that's what I'm thinking. Lanny Johnson, maybe even somebody like Kurt uh, Schilling, perhaps. But I'm gonna look that up real quick yeah. um, because I'm I'm kind of curious myself. It was actually, let's see, Steve Carlton, really, the last one to throw 300 innings. That doesn't sound right. Um, well, yeah, he was. Yeah, it, uh, 1980, he threw 304 innings. And by the way, Wilbur Wood, the knuckleballer for for the Chicago. Through three hundred seventy six innings, and Lolich, in seventy one. That's the reason why I want to mention seventy one because seventy one had a really good season. He threw three hundred seventy six, three hundred seventy six. Chris, <laughs> holy crap, man! It's just like it's insane. Yeah. And the last guy that come close in terms of baseball leaders in terms of throwing innings pitch that even came close within the last, within the last twenty five years. I mean, going back a little while was Randy Johnson with two seventy, or I'm sorry, uh, Mike Scott. Mike or Mike Scott and Dwight Gooden, eighty five. Dwight Gooden threw two hundred and seventy six innings. Oh good. And and Again, is,
2: Dwight Gooden was what? Uh twenty one years old when he yeah, did that?
1: Yeah, it was this is I'm sorry. So in terms of for the National League, Mike Scott and him and Burt Baglevin in nineteen eighty five with the twins threw two hundred and ninety three innings. Jack Morris did through two hundred in ninety three and eighty three. But they went out there every yeah, so the last Tiger to come even close then was Morse in nineteen eighty three. So but that's what the pitching staff was built based off of. And it was a lot of shuffling around by Melo Smith. But yeah, that's in the book, The Year of the Pitcher. I highly, highly recommend checking it out. That's what, get, excuse me, McLean was talking about. Some of the he knew that he wasn't right going into that series, and that's why he think he struggled. And so he yeah. had he was a rising fastball. He had a he had that was his big pitch because fastball had a lot of movement on it. But uh, yeah, he couldn't his control. Issues were a problem, too, so.
2: Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that's uh, the classic case. I mean, his career was over within, like, three years of 68, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, correct. Yeah, and he was hes uh he was out of baseball. I mean, he, he expected a lot of his career to also to, to kind of do the the keyboard playing because he was a pretty good keyboard player and what have you. So um Bill Vack, by the way, and this is something I wanted to mention, too, something he talked about in the book. In terms of about changing the needed the forward change and how baseball was kind of stagnant ways, he predicted that baseball would gradually disappear. But he talked about bringing the games to date in short term. He said the baseball that cut the uh, things to the past, and he was the one that kind of suggested reducing the schedule up to 142 games. And he also suggested restructuring the two leagues based on geography in order to play reduce player fatigue and making what call pay TV a top. Um, um, The pay tv model a priority and he was right i mean if you think about this is late 60s and he's coming up with stuff that's going on now and so the height of the mound was lowered from 15 inches to 10 and the strike zone was reduced too considering too as well the strike zone used to be really big chris Mm -hmm. and that
2: yeah it was it was like by the books knees to shoulders
1: yeah so and they they suggested to the the distance between the mound and the plate to 65 feet. So that was also suggested out there, but to have that kind of foresight that the, that bill Vec had, I mean, he was always considered ra- uh, radical, but makes a lot of sense now. Yeah.
2: Well, I mean, with stuff we've been talking about recently too, I remember just a couple of years ago, it seemed like the pitching was too good. And then, you know, suddenly these magic balls appear and now, uh, but still it's nothing but strikeouts and home runs, but yeah, I don't know. It was uh I'm sure for people alive, I don't know how many people who listened to us that were alive and remember 1968. Hopefully, several. But I'm sure, it was a pretty awesome experience that season.
1: Yeah, it was. And for the Tigers, it was I, I a lot of. It was not expected. It really wasn't expected. But again, like I said, a, a lot of times. Sorry, well, I got distracted there. The World Series that was would be last until 1984. But the way that was constructed, they were, a lot of people thought that the 67 team was better, but mm-hmm. they could potentially could have won two pennants. I mean, St. Louis is really – I mean, St. Louis's team was – I mean, that was a juggernaut. That was such a juggernaut of a squad. But that pitching staff arguably is probably one of the best on t- in Tiger's history just for sh- for sure. If you're talking about wins – okay, if you look at the wins aside, look at the strikeouts. McLean had 280 strikeouts, Earl Wilson 168. Lulich had 197. Although that wasn't Lolich's best season, was was sure to come. I mean, Lolich's best season, he's the all time winningest left hander, and I think he he's the all time strikeout leader in Tigers history. I believe his mm. best season was in '71, 308 strikeouts in 376 innings pitched. I mean, and then you follow up, he had it was he he was in the middle of a, a stretch where he had more than 200 strikeouts in a span of. Six straight seasons. So from 1969 until 1974, he struck out more than 200 batters. It's, it's impressive. I mean, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah it's a uh, yeah, six straight seasons, and he came close to winning Cy Young in '71. So that would have it, it, for Tiger fans out there. Also, back to back 20 game winning seasons in '71, '72. So that was a, a special staff, and we hope you enjoy this team build. And next week, I think we're gonna we're gonna go back to. We're going to probably go back to the 86 Mets because I was doing some research on that before the news came out yesterday, but I wanted to make sure we honor that because that Mets team is also a very different build than the Tigers. And the Tigers under Bill Campbell did a good job of always building within the system and really did not venture out of that plan, even for the 84 Tigers. Campbell built two World Series teams under him and Bill Joyce later on, too, so... For all his genius, that was that was genius. He he was managed to these are cast of characters. Lowlich and McLean did not like each other at all. Earl Wilson was kind of kept to himself a little bit, but he was one of the first players, by the way, Chris, that had an agent. Did you know that? No, no, I didn't. Yeah, he was the first the lawyer Bob Wolf became the first lawyer to represent an athlete in contract negotiations with Earl Wilson in 1966. So wow. yeah, there you go. And he... He really he talked about his whole experience coming over in, in a quote that I, I did a story on Earl Wilson for Motor City Bengals. Just the whole atmosphere around the park was special. I came to a winning situation as opposed to when I was in Boston, where it was just playing the game and getting out. But oh, I remember too, the old stadium could be cold even in July, referring to Tiger Stadium. So, but uh, anywho, uh, Chris, was there anything else you want to add before we get out of here this evening, this afternoon, rather? Uh,
2: uh not not really. You know, I mean, baseball keeps making news uh, for the good and the bad. I uh, I said hold out hope that there can be games this year I just i I just don't see how they're gonna make it work, but maybe they'll come up with a special magic plan, and I will look foolish and I look forward to that
1: yeah i will I will too as well, and we thank everybody for their feedback we we appreciate everybody getting back to us and for everybody I've asked for questions about or kind of requests for the the few people I've done it. Thank you. I appreciate it. I just wanted to mention out there that I know sometimes on Twitter and social media, things get buried, but for people who actually make the effort to leave us feedback and comments, it goes a long way. So for everybody who's retweeted us, who's done anything like that, who's ever listened, thank you. And uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk next week. We'll talk Sugar, the movie Sugar. We'll go into the 86 Mets. Thank you again for listening to a special edition of Tiger's SRD, Remembering Al Kaline, the 68 World Series. Winning team, we'll see you next week.